What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ariana Thacker of Conscience VC. Conscience is an early stage fund investing at the intersection of consumer and science. The fund backs pre-seed and seed companies from then the thesis and it tries to be the first check written whenever it has a chance. Ariana is a founding partner of the fund. She wears a ton of different hats in her role. In this talk, we discuss tactical advice on raising a first-time fund without an existing network, standing out through authenticity, deal breakers when evaluating founding teams, and why conscience is betting on the intersection of science and consumer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We have one of our favorite people kicking in with us today, Ariana Thatcher, who also has a really cool name for her fund. I'm going to let her reveal it, but I find it very difficult nowadays to get a cool like word.vc and she killed it with this one and like a very authentic story. So how about to get started, you just in a minute or two, give us a quick background on yourself and then maybe talk a little bit about what you've been building and just why you're such a dope person. Oh, thanks, Tyler. Great to be on the podcast. Longtime fan. I never thought I would be here today joining you guys. So quick background. I, I think I'll share some things that you're not going to find on my LinkedIn. So starting with the more personal history. So grew up in a multicultural home. My dad is super cool. Um, imagine this banjo playing Southern dude who's six foot four, which is where I get my height from, and an immigrant Israeli Yemenite mom who's more like five foot one, um, but has the presence to definitely compensate for that height. And we grew up celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah, and we grew up both humble and happy. So to paint a picture of my childhood, very happy, wholesome, idyllic. Lots of times in the park, um, winning stuffed animals at carnivals. My dad was always really incredible at winning those types of toys, renting from Blockbuster, et cetera, et cetera. And then from the more humble end, since you don't typically see that in this industry, we grew up renting modest apartments with a family of four, going to public schools, driving used cars that were typically a decade old, getting pay-as-you-go phone plans where the free phone was included, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. But again, very happy. Never felt like we lacked anything. And... My parents were always incredibly loving and supportive and really emphasized education, specifically my mom. She hustled her butt off to make it to the U.S. and showed up here without even knowing English. She literally just showed up. And she's one of the strongest people that I know. So I grew up with that energy in the household and adopted that level of resilience and boldness. So neither of my parents graduated from college. I was a straight A student in high school and I loved math and science and physics. And I was like, hey, maybe I should go to college. And I went through that application process and just figured it out, made a lot of mistakes along the way, but ended up at UCLA, which worked out great. So I majored in chemical engineering and ended up self-funding, which was definitely hard work to make that happen and graduated on time in four years. And I think during my 20s, a lot of my career 
probably doesn't make sense on paper, but it was really the accumulation of those experiences during that entire decade that really helped me start and build conscience, which is the most authentic embodiment of anything I've ever done before. So that's the name of the fund. And just to walk you through high level what those experiences oh, were. Oh, thank you. And I was going through chemical engineering and when I was in school, I was doing tissue engineering research. I interned at Phillips 66 and Abbott Labs and ultimately ended up in oil and gas. When I graduated, I worked for a joint venture between Exxon and Shell. So picture me in my early 20s in a hot pink hard hat, steel-toed boots, working out in the desert, eight-figure budget. And there came a point where I just felt like big companies just moved too slowly for me. It wasn't completely aligned with my personality type. And took some time off from, from work and decided to travel the world. And I had a lot of incredible experiences doing that. I ended up going to around 20 countries by myself. And I set a rule for myself to meet around 10 people a day. Some days I would exceed that. Some days I wouldn't hit that, but that was fine. And when I came back, I got involved in startup, worked on the founding team of an academic spin-out from UCLA's mechanical engineering department. And from that experience, got more hands up with several more startups, ended up working for a notable hard tech fund out in Boston, focused on industrial sciences, um, incredibly smart team there. And I learned tons and I ended up leading a deal there from start to finish in my first nine months. And after that, I ended up tag teaming what would be the proof of concept fund for conscience. And what we ended up doing was packaging multiple companies into a single SPV during COVID, which was an iterative process because we didn't really have the network access and we didn't really have the funds to make the investments happen either. So we would get a few checks in and I would front my, or the majority of my life savings during those in-between states as we were building that single SPV. And fast forward a bit, we're now starting to see some really great performance out of that. And it really helped set the stage for conscience because I had something I could show to investors that I had serious operational chops and skin in the game and the right attitude to, to launch a fund plus a track record, which was important. Yeah, that's some context on me and, and where I came from and the path to, to where I am today. True that. Do you want to quickly tell us a little bit more about the fund before we dive into what it was like building this amazing thing? Yeah, yeah. So Conscience, it's an early stage fund, so focused on pre-seed and seed stage investments at the intersection of consumer and science. Most people tilt their head and raise their eyebrows and ask, what do you mean by that intersection? It seems two very different things getting meshed together. So think companies like Tesla and 23andMe. So these are companies that have successfully consumerized scientific breakthrough. And it's it's shown in the name too. Um, if, if you look at it closely, there's actually three layers to the name. So Conscience is consumer and science blended together. Definitionally, it means your intuition, your inner voice. And the third layer on that is that it's a word play on the word conscious capital. So uh, in making sure I invest in a socially and ethically responsible way. And to that end, half the portfolio to date has been into female and minority founders as well. Beautiful. Beautiful. How about we dive into the real and right. maybe start with a piece that you wrote on raising a first-time fund during a pandemic. Yeah, pretty viral. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Before, before diving into that piece, a lot of folks kept asking me the question, what made you think you can pull it off? And the answer was, I didn't know. There was a lot of uncertainty. I literally worked my ass off almost every single day. And there was just, a, you just got to turn off your brain from the fear that you feel during this process. And I think this is an attitude I definitely adopted from my mom. 
And throughout the process, there was a lot of rejection and days where I felt like I was running up a wall and not going anywhere. Days where I literally broke down crying from feeling like a failure or worthless or alone or overworked or not taken seriously. And that sucked. But I didn't let it eat at me. And this does require a lot of mental fortitude. And the first point in the article is that it's a game of endurance. So how long and how hard are you willing to endure? And instead of spoiling the article, because there are 25 points listed there, I'll actually touch upon things that didn't make it in the article that actually really helped in my fundraising process. And one point is a concept called peacocking. And so that's, <laughs> I think that's a dating term, but it's a way to stand out in the most authentic way. How? And that's how I got a lot of my initial meeting was through this process of peacocking. And the way I did that was growth hacking my way on LinkedIn to get more followers in my company than A16Z or Sequoia. So that, that actually drove a lot of meetings. And a lot of folks were just curious, how did you do that? And they would just book calls with me to, to find out how. You want to give us a quick tip? Yeah, I will, I will share exactly how I did that. I get asked this all the time. And I, I just noticed that there was opportunity on LinkedIn. There were a lot of folks selecting self-employed. I'm sure you've noticed that too. And the options for that kind of suck. You would select this ugly gray box and that would go on your LinkedIn next to all of your beautifully designed logos at previous companies you've worked at. So I thought there was opportunity to design a really nice, sexy logo for self-employed. So I did that and claimed the self-employed page and then passively accumulated all those followers. And ironically, I'm also the most employed <laughs> VC firm on LinkedIn, the side effect of, of those growth hacking efforts. And yeah, that's how I did it. Actually, LinkedIn kicked me off for doing that. So I had to contact their technical support group and get the page back. And I then rebranded that page under <laughs> conscience. So did a Lazarus move. Why did they do that? Apparently, I, and I didn't know this, apparently I violated some sort of policy on LinkedIn. I wasn't sure how or why, or I was, I was just really unclear. I, I think if that page would have let run, I don't even know how many followers I would have. It didn't take very long for me to hit that follower count with that growth hacking technique, and it was completely passive. That is fire. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Got, okay. Tell us why consumers need scientific breakthroughs and how that works together and how you pick out Teslas. Yeah, I would love to pick out a portfolio of Teslas. So I, when I, I'm talking to <laughs> prospective investors, I, I, walk, I typically walk them through 10 nuanced points on, on why this intersection makes sense. I won't bore your, your listeners on all those points, so I'll just cover two here on the podcast. One, with consumer, what I love about that is that you get those immediate signals, especially at the early stages. For example, customers aren't going to pre-order something they don't want, and they're not for sure not going to pay for it in advance. And unlike enterprise, where you, you see these internal startup competitions, you see these partnerships, and that could just be an exploratory, even intellectual endeavor, or they're pitted against other startups and you just don't even know. So the signals just aren't very clear with the enterprise investments versus consumer, at least in my opinion. And for the deep tech side, you with the science angle, you get the defensibility. So I thought the thesis was the best of both worlds. Granted, there are a unique set of challenges when you're meshing these two worlds together. And I think I have unique insight on, on how to navigate that. And I'm excited to be pioneering this intersection. I haven't seen a fund yet slice and dice the thesis in this way. So let's see how we go. Yeah, I, I really haven't either. I, I think it's like super dope. Like I've seen people play in spaces that kind of lean into this, whether it be like consumer health or silver tech plays and all of these things. But I've never thought of Tesla being a scientific breakthrough for the consumer. Dope.
if you have any companies in your portfolio that you want to highlight that kind of do this, I'd love to hear about it. This isn't even a question that we have planned. I'm just sitting here. Yeah, but, um, um, for sure. I'll actually go with the first company that I anchored out of the fund, which I'm starting to get in the habit of doing a lot more as an investor. So being that first check-in and helping founders close their rounds quickly, even though my check sizes aren't large, candidly, they're between 100 to 250. Very transparent with that with founders, but I, I do get hands-on and close quickly. So out of the conscience portfolio, there are seven companies and this was the second investment out of the funds. And it's a company called Nimbus. So it's the cloud, it's that broom on Harry Potter. It's probably something on Dragon Ball Z, I'm pretty sure, which inspired the name. And the website is nimbus.green. And what they did was solve the narrow tilting vehicle problem. And if you've ever been on a motorcycle, intuitively you would get this. So if you have a narrow car, imagine a car that's half the width of a smart car. So it has the form factor of a motorcycle, but it's completely enclosed. So it has the safety features of a car. It's a narrow tilting vehicle is able to, via hardware and software, balance and not roll over when banking turns. So Nimbus solved this problem and it's something the big OEMs haven't really cracked yet. So Toyota, Hyundai, Mercedes, BMW, they've all tried. I think the closest out of the big, big car producers is Toyota with their concept car, the iRoad concept car. And I heard through the grapevine, it costs as much as a Ferrari at their prototype scale to develop. And it's unsafe at speeds 30 miles per hour and higher. So Nimbus comes in with a team of UMish and Stanford engineers, and they are able to drive the bill of material costs to around $3,000. And they're safe at speeds of 50 miles per hour, so nearing highway speeds. So already it breaks your innovation as an early stage company and just fell in love with the founder, his brand the way he thinks and was excited to anchor that. And then a very, very notable tier one VC ended up leading that round shortly after for a three X in, in the fund in the first quarter, which was exciting to see. So that's it. Wow. Yeah. So that's, I think that's the closest <laughs> Tesla-esque example in the <laughs> portfolio and, and one I'm super, super excited to be a part of. I'm looking at this right now. Mm -hmm. let you reserve i can't get one can i get one let me ping lee hang and, and try to figure that out for you yeah i was like i want to get one for my guests at 99 dollars. yeah it's that's cheaper than a bus pass in major cities so i can't even imagine the productivity gains i would unlock for lower income workers you're not tied to taking the bus to go to and from work you can live uh, maybe further out from the city and cost of living is a bit more favorable plus it's three times more green than traditional electric vehicles plus four times more compact than a traditional car most people just commute as a solo driver anyway. And now you have a solution where you can park in motorcycle parking and seamlessly navigate through traffic and parking. So there's just so many ripple effects on why this is such a cool investment. Yeah. I, the yeah. first thing I thought to myself, I'm from Chicago and Chicago is like an energy place, whether it be like from a cultural perspective or like just like a city infrastructure perspective. But yeah. it's the rapper. I'm sure some people here have a, a thing or they've listened to Chance Rapper at some point. He's like, in Chicago, it's easier to find a gun than it is to find a parking spot. Okay, so tell us, what is a deal breaker for you when you're evaluating a founder? Yeah, that's a great question. Could I do more than one? Right off the bat, a lack of integrity. That's a no-go for me. Second, a lack of passion. But this is going to be a, a multi-year intense endeavor. If you're not super passionate about the problem you're solving, come on. And the third, and it, I think the third is really critical. If I don't walk away from the call feeling like, man, this founder can solve any problem that this company will face, I, I think it's a no-go. I agree. You want to go for a bonus? 
Oh, go for a bonus. Yeah, this is more, yeah, probably not something you've heard on the podcast, but I also field out dark triad personality traits. So psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and that's tied to the questions I ask, which um, more and more are going deeper on psychology. So I, th I think if I can put a number on it, this is total hand-waving. I made this up. So 70% of the success of an early stage company is probably on the founder. So I find myself veering more into the realm of psychology and what makes the founder tick? How do they work? And these are some of the traits that I'm trying to distill with those questions too. Okay. We didn't have uh, Machiavellianism. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. On the bingo board for words used in this podcast. I think that's the first. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> that's so fun. Definitely lots of firsts here. It's also the first time that someone's brought a company on here that, or talked about a company on here where I thought I needed them. I take that back. I take that back because people take offense. It's the first time where I thought I was going to dig in my pocket and pay for something. Okay. Next question. On the theme of hacking things, mm -hmm. what are some hacks that you've learned in winning founders? Hacks, it's a tricky word because I, I don't feel like I have hacks. I just feel like I'm going to outwork almost anybody. And I think it's, it comes down to that. It comes down to hard work and adding value. And for some reason, a VC and, and the whole network is just one big game of telephone. People definitely talk. So I always make sure to come prepared to the meetings, or at least moderately well-researched, try to understand the market, understand the founder, dig through their LinkedIn, whatever information I can find online. Sometimes I do preemptive reference checks in advance of a call. And once I make the investment, I make sure to go full ass, so over deliver. I, I tend to not even share the full scope of ways I'm going to add value. And it comes as a surprise to many of the founders of how hands-on I end up being. Um, some of the founders have said I'm the most hands-on person on their cap table, which is wild. Now I have a portfolio of 30 companies. And to date, Conscience has been a, a one-woman show, just to, to give you an idea of how much I really put into the portfolio. But if, if you're looking for more tactical hacks on like source and winning founders. Um, I've created a massive pipeline of other investors and we touched upon this earlier, but scheduling these quarterly calls and finding ways to add value to a lot of people in my network, preparing before the call, so coming through for hours, which resonates with founders. They're impressed. It's not something they normally see. And founders, I'm just able to connect on their wavelength, just coming in with this much work and this much diligence before a call and they always appreciate it. So I haven't really had much trouble winning competitive deals, bringing this type of energy on a call. Say less. Sounds like one, working hard, obvious. It's, that's just the game at this point because there's so many people. It's not like the early days where you could just be rich and have a few other rich friends and things come to you. So mm -hmm. huge. But two, I think I've, I haven't met many people in a game where it's just natural for them to consistently be hacking, where it just seems intuitive for them to come up with these lists and things of that nature and just wow people and just be a social butterfly. But it actually seems like that's natural to you. And I would say like for you, from what I've learned in our few times interacting, you would have probably ended up in that place naturally, whether or not it was like some like huge grind. But I'm so happy that those two have come together. And I think a lot of people can learn from that. Good point. What is the next question? I actually put away my question list because it's been naturally flowing, but I know there's five <laughs> things that I'm forgetting. Okay. You know what? Screw it. <laughs> we, I know there was a point I want to talk about with you having a solo GP structure yeah. to date. And you pointed that out. What has that been like? It has to have been like incredibly difficult, but also in some ways incredibly freeing. So like, like how do you de from the work? <laughs> 
Man, I, how do I decompress? I, I'm still learning how to decompress. So I, I think I could go into hobbies and, and interests to, to best answer that question. I don't think I have normal hobbies. Matchmaking, that's a hobby, right? I, I love matchmaking my friends, whether it's romantically, personally. <laughs> I just love it. I literally, <laughs> my friends are like, you literally cannot help yourself. And I, I'm like, I know I can. I'm, I'm constantly pairing up my friends, whether it's new gal pals or, or whatever. So I guess that's a hobby, right? And I love motivating my friends. I genuinely love seeing them succeed. I'm, I'm proud to know them and finding ways to add value and help them. Sometimes I write poetry and for some reason that comes very easily to me. I even wrote a mini poetry book so I can crank out poems pretty pretty quickly. I love music. I love listening to obscure artists and making mental bets on who's going to take off. Like I was early fans of Glass Animals and Lana Del Rey and more right when they were getting started. I love learning. I read textbooks for fun. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to decompress. I haven't had much time to really explore my full hobby list while building conscience. But as I'm scaling and bringing on now new members of the team, the fun's finally at that point where I can scale. And I'm, I'm excited to jump back into doing more of what I love outside of work. That are on the come up. And then textbooks that are worth reading. Oh my gosh. The textbooks are pretty, like I was reading a textbook on options trading. I read like security analysis by Ben Graham. I don't know. It's just like this like random hodgepodge of textbooks. And in terms of artists, I'll actually point to specific songs that I've been really driving out to lately. So one is called Not So Bad by Vize, V-I-Z-E. And it was a collaboration with Felix Jane. And another one that I've been jamming out to is Cola by Camel Fat and Elderbrook. So those are those artists are relatively well known now. I, I think not mainstream yet, and I, I think those are going to take off if, if you want to jam out to that. I I frequently work out to those um, two songs in particular. Yo Clay, we should start for each podcast or newsletter. We should start asking people songs and linking <laughs> the songs in in the newsletter because that that sounds dope. And I'm a huge music fan, so thank you. I will be jamming to those today. <laughs> Beautiful, love it. Tell us, tell us the broader vision of the fund. Yeah, and this is tied to my why. It's all about founders. So my long-term vision for Conscience is how do I best serve founders? And I'm working on um, several initiatives now to make that happen, and I'll be revealing that over the next year. I'm not quite ready to disclose what that looks like yet, but I promise I'll come out in the next year, and hopefully my website looks less music video situation and more with more content on, on what exactly I'm up to. But a high level on that, I'm, I'm launching an alternative marketing agency and hopefully an alternative talent agency if all goes well with the marketing agency. Those two things are coupled in, in terms of the business model. So that's what I currently have cooking right now. Perfect. I'm loving that you're doing that. I'm pissed that you won't tell us. <laughs> How about this broader vision for you? Broader vision for me, I have a heart for philanthropy and I see conscience evolving in that way longer term. Near term, Fund One is actually for my parents. So to give my parents the life they deserve for giving me so much growing up, like they definitely sacrificed their needs for that. Fund Two is for me. Fund Two is play money. I'm excited for Fund Two. But longer term, I, I want to give away a substantial amount of wealth and I think this intersection of consumer and science is a great way to solve a lot of humanity's problems. So I, I think it lends itself really well to some sort of philanthropic arm to, to solve a lot of issues for, for people. And I have some ideas for that. True. Okay. You are dope for having your why in your pocket. 
One of my close homies says, keep your why in your pocket, and you went straight there. I, I appreciate that. I think in my 20s, I didn't really have a clear why. It was a lot of exploration and just figuring out what's authentic to me. And as soon as I, I came across venture capital, which I thought was the best business model to work with founders, it just became so clear and I became laser focused. And now I just, I, I really love what I'm doing and I'm excited to be building on this for decades. I feel it. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that wow alignment moment and some people are lucky like you to be able to actually get to the the tier tier one piece of that and with that i'll open up the floor for you to ask me and clay anything you want and we'll be 100 percent honest and vulnerable and all those things and uh, from there we'll bring in clay's beautiful voice to hit you with the quick fire because we have a lot of stuff on your plate today wow amazing I'm, I'm so excited to ask you guys questions what is a book you both would recommend let's see I think one that I keep coming back to is Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb and this idea of things that gain from disorder. That changed a lot of frameworks for me. So if I had to say one, I would probably say that. A lot of that same logic applies to venture capital where we're just taking a bunch of options bets where you can be wrong 90% of the time um, and you can still come out as a massive winner. So I think that's one for me. But interested to hear what Tyler has too. Love Taleb, by the way. Great choice. Yeah, I can't really give you a book right now. I've read so many books and I've actually pivoted towards the headways of the world where they give you like those 10 to 15 minute book summaries. A book that, that I really loved when I was younger was like the Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Millionaire Next Door thing, but that was just to escape poverty. And then I really like the Ray Dalio principles and all these like Napoleon Hill type books that kind of teach you the fundamental infrastructures to be successful or happy or self-fulfilled in life. Mm -hmm. But what I'd actually recommend is either meditative, positive affirmation music, like beautiful chorus, where it's like these incredibly angelic voices that just repeat mantras that are incredibly positive and you listen to those every day. Or there's this guy, Earl Nightingale, I believe. And he has this 10 minute video called The Secret to Winning in Life. It's an excerpt from a, and it, the, the YouTube channel's Focus Motivation. And it's just this video that talks about having a positive attitude. And like, before you become, you must behave or believe that you are. And everything that you see in life is just all about your interpretation of such thing and continuing to double down on, you know, no matter what life throws at you, having that extra ticket in your pocket that says that I can try again or eventually it's a numbers game, I'll get there. I love all of these suggestions so much. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Clay, you want to run us out? So Ariana can get back to finding us super dope ways to not parking <laughs> and have better lives, just period. Yeah, let's do it. So Ariana, we have these at the end. You all put these together. So you've seen them before, but six questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. So first one we've got is what's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, and this actually hits close, it's close to home. I, I, growing up, I've always heard I need to do X, Y, Z to get to X, Y, Z. For example, when I told my friends I wanted to get into venture capital, they're like, that's going to be a really hard goal for you to hit without an MBA, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I've never been one to follow the rules or follow a linear path. I've always been 
someone to find leapfrog ways to get to where I want to go. And I actually have a fun anecdote for this. So this was at a time where I was considering going after the MBA. I ended up doing an online MBA, which is good enough, but I thought the most value I can get from an MBA program is really the network. And how do I replicate that without actually going and committing two years of my life and just so much money to make that happen? And what I did was create a GMAT mega resources folder, which went viral. I stopped counting at around 200,000 email addresses, but created this like mega folder where just studying resources from that folder, I got a 730, frankly, without much studying. I was just using the, the resources in there and started sharing that on LinkedIn and folks were sharing it with each other. And I'm still getting messages to this day of how I've helped folks get over a 700 on their GMAT. And it's such a small world. I ended up interviewing an intern for the previous firm that saw my name. And he was just like, where do I know your name from? And he's like, do you make a GMAT resources folder? And he mentioned, I totally used that and it was helpful. So it just had this amazing network effects. And I was able to effectively meet so many different pre-MBA students and MBA students across the country and even internationally with that. So it just leapfrogged my goals in that way. So I'd always challenge people to to really think, do they really need to do XYZ to get to XYZ? That is awesome. I didn't know you had done that with the MBA piece. I didn't know that you've gone viral multiple ways, like a walking case study have gone viral. Oh, awesome. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, all right, next one we've got, what is the biggest misconception people have about you? Yeah, I wanted to include this question because it's also a question I include in my due diligence process too. And it reveals a few different things about a founder. So one, level of transparency, two, level of self-awareness, and three, inadvertently, someone's red flag. So this is one of the questions if anyone wants to borrow it. But a, a misconception is that I definitely bring a certain level of intensity to my work. It's something I care very deeply about. I even joke that my laptop is my boyfriend. And I think the misconception is that I'm always on and always very serious. You guys bring this really fun side out during the podcast, but I think my baseline is actually silly. I feel like I'm a big silly dad trapped in a female's body somehow. Like I'm always cracking dad jokes. It's sometimes sprinkled in my investment memos. I think it mostly comes out with my sister and close friends. I'm like blasting and singing along to Britney Spears while I'm zipping around Miami, my new home for the next 12 months. I think that's been a big misconception, particularly folks that haven't gone to chance to to know me well love that okay next one in the last year what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life wow yeah i feel like the last year was incredibly transformative in so many different ways just going through the process of starting conscience was very intense i learned a lot but it's like marinating what's the most most impactful new belief or new habit and it was patience and having this decade-long view or multi-decade-long view and more tactically, um, what that meant for me was learning to love the process and every part of it, like learning to love to get to a no with someone because it gives me clarity. So just reframing what would be perceived as maybe a negative event for some people into a positive and, and just loving every part of the process and being patient. And when you're patient, it gives you the space and time and creative freedom to really build something worthwhile versus if you're always being impatient and trying to rush to certain goals that you're not necessarily maybe building something super worthwhile. So that was a big um, mental shift for me in the last year. Just learning to prioritize process over everything else is like something I keep coming back to. I forget who said that to me the first time, but like just stuck with me and now it's just ingrained in my, in my mind. All right, I got a few more here. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? 
Oh my God, no sucks. I think it's literally the worst. Um, access, and this is changing even more rapidly than I anticipated over the last year, but it still needs a lot of work. Just having more investor access to great founders, even if they don't come equipped with the networks and the know-how to access those networks. I would love to see more change in that. Yeah. If you think having to say no in your shoes sucks, like I to say no as like a 23-year-old with absolutely no idea what I was talking about, I always felt really bad and guilty there. It's like these founders have poured their life and soul into this work. Obviously, no, a lot more than me, but just because like not a fit for our fund, I feel like type of an email saying it just felt really awkward. I would totally agree with what you said. Related to that, how do you say no to founders? I try to go as gentle as possible. And this definitely has a spectrum to it. So the more time that a founder input into the process, that's usually correlated with how like detailed and thoughtful my past note is. And I always try to provide constructive feedback or think of helpful intros or ways to be helpful. I'd say that's 90% of the past notes that end up happening. Sometimes I'm time constrained and it's not always the most articulated past note, but I'd say by far the 90% of the cases, I, I really try to go deep and try to understand the reasons why I passed and ways that founders can maybe hedge those risks or overcome those risks. But it, it's still challenging because sometimes intuitively, like it's a no, but I, I have to then think, think through that. Like, why is it a no? Like, why did I get there? And thinking through that sometimes takes, takes a while. So I, I block off time in my calendar to send out thoughtful past notes and really think through that. Yeah. Totally agree. I think it also just like reinforces your own thinking, like making sure you're thinking the right way, like when you're passing. So I think that's just good practice. All right, last one here. Best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Yeah, I've had a lot of junior VCs ask this question and it goes back to this concept of leapfrogging, like with the GMAT marketing campaign, like how do you leapfrog your competition? And I think a lot of like budding venture capitalists kind of approach it in a more intellectual way. They're not really taking action. So how do you take that to the next step? Does that mean creating your own thesis and going out into the universe and interacting with founders in that thesis? Even if you don't have capital, make a paper portfolio, demonstrate that you had the ability to reach out to the founders and add value and maybe even help connect those founders to the appropriate investors. So it's a way that you can continue to network and source and I can't even imagine the number of benefits one could derive from doing that. And being a venture scout for multiple funds, I'm starting to structure my own venture scout program now. And I know a lot of the other emerging managers could always use the help. If you find someone you really resonate with, reach out, offer ways to add value. You have to take it to that action step. It's not just about having a certain degree or reading a certain book or listening to a podcast. Like what's your next step from that? And you can deconstruct the ways you can be helpful in a fund across like sourcing, due diligence and value. You add. So how do you demonstrate that to other investors that you can be effective and worthwhile in those different capacities? I love that. I feel like I've had the same experience. Everybody's asking for like favors, getting in the door. It's like, I don't think you necessarily need permission to get in the door anymore. It's like if you build a body of work mm -hmm. online or just take action, like you're saying, and like showcase this is what I've been reading, or this is what I've been learning, and just build a portfolio of something you could share with somebody. I think you just underestimate how many doors that could open. So I think that's the best way to get started. Build out your own presence that way. I think that's all the questions I've got. Tyler, you have anything else you want to ask last minute? I'm super good. And we've had an amazing session. This is one of our, our best ones in terms of being authentic and actually like being something that people were having fun while listening to is going to be my take on this. So thank you. 
Thank you both. This was so much fun. Huge thanks again to Ariana for coming on. We hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Ariana, we've tagged her social info in the description below. We should note that she is only on LinkedIn. Made it clear that she doesn't like being on any other platform. Um, if you're in Confluence, you can also find her contact info within our directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.